From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. A third of the way through the SEC slate, men's basketball finds themselves sitting atop the league standings following a dominant performance against Arkansas on Wednesday. On today's show, we'll talk about the latest developments from Mike White's team and keep you posted on other happenings around Gator Nation in a roundtable discussion with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. Also, we'll introduce you to Gabby Seiler, a senior soccer star whose Gator career has been extended thanks to an unexpected opportunity with the women's basketball team. But first, one of the biggest issues the Gators have dealt with this season has been the surprising lack of production from Kayvon Allen. The junior was named preseason All-SEC, yet has had trouble getting his shot to fall, which has led to more and more questions about one of the most soft-spoken people you'll ever see. But after all the chatter, the Arkansas native finally had the breakout game that seemed inevitable against the Razorbacks, and we began our roundtable chat by asking Chris what differences he saw in his performance. I think maybe that whole Arkansas thing might have something to do with it, but uh, you know, if you're if you're Mike White and his coaches, maybe you want to think that uh, a light finally came on because I mean, being a practice every day like I am, you you see these coaches how they urge him to shoot the ball. You see his teammates tell him to shoot the ball. Chris Chioza came in to uh, speak to the media uh, the day before the Arkansas game. The subject uh, turned to Kayvon Allen. And he was saying, after every time out, I tell him to shoot the ball. I, go, I, I tell him to shoot it if you're open. I tell him to shoot it if you're not open. We don't care. And if you look at that game at Arkansas, he, he had that mentality, Adam, because uh, I think the tell-all play in that game, he, he took a dribble to the baseline and was double teamed and had these two Arkansas Razorbacks around him and shot clock winding down, maybe less six, five, four, something like that. He just rose up over the two of them after a little step back, bombed in a three in total traffic. That's what they want. They want that kind of aggression. And the previous four games, he hadn't shot a free throw. That just speaks to his aggression. Um, in meetings with the coaches, they broke down tape of last year and the year before of how, like, in the open floor, he'd put his head down and get downhill and try to get to the basket. Whereas in this year, they caught him too many times, maybe deferring and passing the ball off, whether it's to Michael Koru on – or someone else, you know, who do you want to have the ball in an advantageous uh, man on, you know, two on one situation, Michael Kaur or Kayvon Allen? And, and, and finally, on a team where you have Igor Kolachov and Jalen Hudson, you know, Kayvon Allen passes them the ball, there's a good chance it's not coming back to him. Because those guys are aggressive players. They're not selfish players, but they are, they are offensively wired. And I think the whole charge was to get Kayvon Allen back to that offensively charged mentality. And uh, he certainly was. He took nine shots. He made six. He was four or five from three-point range. He got to the free throw line six times. I mean, again, no free throws the last four games for a nearly 90% free throw shooter. He shot six against Arkansas, made all six. Now he's at 90%. Uh, what a boost this would be for this team if Kayvon Allen has magically returned to the first-team All-SEC player of, uh, of last season. Um, obviously, that remains to be seen, but uh, that was nothing but an encouraging sign um, after that game Wednesday night. 
Well, and as you noted, one game does not a season make. But but let's say that Kayvon Allen is back on track and that story sort of goes away. What does the next thing become for Mike White and his staff that they maybe the, the one thing they have next on their to-do list, if you will? Every day is their to-do list is, is to play better on defense. Uh, their three-point defense is the worst in the league. Um, they have to be better on closeouts and they have to be better in communicating and they have to be better in transition defense where a lot of three-pointers uh, tend to rear their head. So, I mean, that's going to be an ongoing discussion as it has been since they reported for uh, for the fall semester back in back in August. They've been talking about that. But uh, their defense has gotten better since the SEC started, I believe. Uh, I think a lot of people will say if you're talking about one single solitary thing that could potentially impact the team more than anything, it could be the arrival of a certain 6'11", 260-pound center. Johnny Bunu has been on the floor this week in a non-contact and non-competitive capacity. Uh, he's been running the floor. He's dunking the ball, um, elbows to the rim. He's moving laterally. He's doing all that stuff. He's just he's just not ready to play in a game yet, and he's not ready to compete in practice yet. So if he can return in the next couple weeks, that changes things drastically, because especially the options Florida can do to roll out defensively in terms of half-court, uh, ball screen defense, obviously rim protection, uh, rebounding, give Kavarius Hayes a, a, some, a, a breather. If he can, if Kavarius Hayes can stay out of foul trouble, that's always a, a big thing for the Gators because they're hurting so much in depth in the front court. If you talk about Igbunu not playing, Isaiah Stokes not playing, Chase Johnson not playing, Gorjak Gak got a concussion at Ole Miss. He has to be cleared out of protocol. But uh, if they can get their big man back, I would imagine it's kind of be a uh, shot in the arm collectively for the program and something that these guys can kind of rally around a little bit. Whenever Florida plays Kentucky, it's always a big deal. And this weekend, it's college game day. It's all the, the hoopla up in Lexington. So how big of a challenge is this? It, it's not Kentucky of the last few years, probably, but it, it, it's still Kentucky. It's still Rupp Arena. It's still Kentucky. It's still Rupp Arena. It's still zero McDonald's All-Americans against, like, what, seven or eight of them, however many they are. It's Florida against Shea Alexander, who was committed to the Gators uh, um, until down to wire decision. He changed his mind and decided to go to Kentucky. Florida, by winning the game uh, against Arkansas, Adam moved into uh, sole possession of first place in the SEC, a half game ahead of Auburn. Their full game up on Kentucky and Alabama. So uh, the stakes are what they are. Kentucky is coming off a brutal loss to South Carolina, where they blew a 14 point lead in the second half. So they'll have a mat on crowd is always crazy. Florida hasn't won there since 2014 on that in that undefeated team. Before that, I think you have to go all the way back to uh, 2008, I think, since the last win at uh, Rupp Arena. Wow. It's obviously going to be a very, very emotional game and a very big game, but just another, just one more SEC game, okay? Um, they're tough to win on the road. Florida's done a good job at holding serve at home in Southeastern Conference play, but this league race is going to take out until March. I mean, you look at the standings, everyone's jumbled up in the middle. Like I said, a half game lead in first place. So uh, this is going to carry out. If Florida could potentially steal one at Kentucky, that would be huge, but only huge if they, you know, win the next week at home against South Carolina. But in terms of um, this isn't you mentioned this isn't the same Kentucky team as maybe in the past years. Obviously, they're always changing because of all the players, all the one and dones coming in. They're not a great shooting team. They're big. They're athletic. Um, but like any John Calipari, a freshman oriented, dominated team, you know, they're going to get better every game. 
because they'll figure things out. They're really good players. They've been, they've been, they were AAU superstars. Uh, obviously they have a, they got that carrot dangling in front of them to play to their potential to be lottery picks and what have you, but his teams always get better. That's just a trend to his credit. And, um, they will be highly motivated to play a Florida team coming in this weekend. Turning our attention to football, it's going to be a long time before a game is played. We all know that, but this week started something very important, Scott, which is off-season conditioning. It's one of the big things that Dan Mullen said, even from day one at his press conference. And Florida's doing things a little bit differently, not just with a really young strength and conditioning coach, but also uh, some rules, changing the culture a little bit inside the changing the culture a little bit inside the weight room. Yeah, this is that time of year, Adam, where uh, the most important guy in the football program is your strength and conditioning coordinator. We're talking about Nick Savage. Uh, Right now, he came with Mullen from Mississippi State. You're right, he's 28 years old, so he's a young guy. Uh, Worked under uh, Mickey Marotti up at Ohio State for a couple of years. Uh, Went down to Mississippi State and made an impact there. And obviously, Dan Mullen thought enough of him to bring into Florida uh, to try to turn around the Gators. And you're right, it's uh, starting right now. You know, it's simplistic. uh, You know, he's got some new rules in the weight room. Uh, There's a Gator head logo there. He doesn't want these guys stepping on that. No uh, headphones, uh, you know, no eating. The the one that I think got most attention on social media was the no yawning sign. (laughs) I know that might be hard for some of these guys since they're going to be working out at you know 6 a.m. and uh, early in the morning. Uh, but at the same time, he's he spoke about it himself. It, it really is more than anything else, Adam. It's changing the mindset, changing the culture. And you're going to hear that, you know, every time a new coach comes in, especially when they're following or entering a situation that hasn't been successful. And, you know, there's nothing about a four and seven culture that Dan Mullen and Nick Savage and these players are interested in keeping. So uh, they're trying to, uh, you know, turn the page on what happened last year, uh, start fresh. And that definitely starts in the weight room. And uh, Savage said it best, I think, the other day when he said they're not just interested in building a winning team. They want to build a winning culture. And that's going to take them farther than anything. And, and the only way you do that is start right away changing uh the way you know the players perceive workouts perceive the team perceive the coaches total makeover and that's uh basically nick savage's uh i guess uh, number one task right now when and chris if you look at basketball with what preston green has done i not only have you seen what he's done but you are part of those workouts in some cases how important is that culture and building that in the weight room in terms of on field on court success it's imperative because uh you're not just building strength, but you're building confidence. You're building teamwork in there because the, what they do is hard. And um, I think w- one of the things that has to really happen, the, the, there has to be a coordination and a uncompromising agreement between the strength staff and the head coach. They have to be in absolute harmony. The strength coach has to be an extension of the head coach, Adam. In there, if there's stuff going on in there that that he doesn't like he has to go to the head coach and the head coach has to make sure that there's ramifications for that and uh i, I think where dan mullen and and savage are are in total harmony in this and you can go back to uh, a press conference where dan mullen was introduced and scott was there and can obviously speak to this that's one of the first things he talked about they needed to rest up in december and get ready for january because they have never been through anything like they were about to go through and I think these guys got a little bit of a sense of that, but I think also there's a sense of excitement with them because this is the start of 
an uphill climb back to where they need to be. I mean, games are won and lost in the offseason. I mean, there just isn't, isn't any question about that. If you're not if you're not training to your utmost capacity uh, and not laying the groundwork for the kind of mentality it takes to win games on Saturday with the toughness and the physicality and being in the position to take over games in the fourth quarter, you're you know, what are you doing? And all that stuff starts now. Uh, again, um, I got to talk to Savage a little bit for a story I wrote back in December, and he said if, if he doesn't see you know, the kind of work ethic that, that he anticipates, that he expects, you know, there are going to be ramifications. You know what those ramifications are? Those guys are going to have to work harder if they want to be part of the program. And so, uh, you know, those those trash cans spread around in the weight room aren't there for decoration. <laughs> so uh, uh, sooner or later, those guys are going to get in the weight room and they're going to find some stuff out. They're going to find some stuff out about themselves. They're going to feel a lot better about themselves over the long haul. I guarantee that. So let's say all things go really, really well this year for the Gators, and they're in the college football playoff discussion. That would now include Scott Strickland on the committee. It was announced this week that the Gators AD is going to be on the committee for a three-year term to help pick those teams. And I guess the, what's the significance of this for Florida to have their athletic director, Scott Strickland, in this position? Well, I think Scott's even said or that he'll recuse himself if it ever comes to the point where Florida is in that conversation. I, I think that's kind of the operating uh, understanding there. But what it does, Adam, I mean, it gives a he's really representing the Southeastern Conference and it gives them a voice in that room uh, to lobby for uh, the cases of the teams in the league. You got to you got to believe that Jeff Long had some input this past year when uh, Alabama and Ohio State, that debate came down. Obviously, Alabama got in and they end up winning the national championship. So how much of a factor did that committee have? Well, they selected those four teams. So you could say they had quite a bit of impact on the 2017 national champion. So, yeah, these guys are in uh, and, and women. They're in powerful positions in the sport. But Scott said it best himself in terms of the national college football playoff in its short time has already become a a very big and special part of the game. And their role really is to make sure that they uphold the integrity of the game. And they're always going to be open to criticism uh, because you are responsible for picking the four teams that play for the national championship. But, you know, it, it's a, a collective effort. So not one person is going to have an overwhelming voice, so to speak. Everybody's going to have their say. But it's, it's just uh, it's another uh, career achievement for uh, Scott Strickland. It looks good for the Florida program to have uh, your athletic director part of that uh, process. And, uh, you know, I think that's uh, something that just talking to him the other day, he said it's not something that he had pursued or uh, had, you know, had his on his career uh, to do list, as you like to say, Adam. <laughs> but uh, it's something an opportunity came along. And I think one that he uh, felt, hey, this is a uh, something that's interesting and uh, it's going to be a time commitment too. I mean, these guys, for the final stretch of the regular season, they meet out in Dallas each week mm -hmm. and they're almost out there for basically a day and a half, two days. So uh, it's not just something where you kind of fill out a form uh, on Saturday or Sunday morning and send in. I mean, there's some uh, heavy lifting that goes with it. There are no absentee ballots on the college football playoff committee. No, there's not. But it's uh, like I said, in a short time, it's certainly become a huge part of the game. And, you know, as we talked on this show before about, future expansion of that college football playoff is that going to happen over his next three years we don't know but you know he could have a say in that process so again 
uh, having a, a, a voice in, a, I guess, a powerful institution right now. Mm-hmm. Let's wrap things up today with our PAT. I'm not sure if you guys had the chance to, to watch the Minnesota and New Orleans game live as it was happening, but like most people, I sat there with my jaw dropped and my DVR repeating multiple times that final play just out of sheer disbelief at what happened. And you guys know this, most great plays, there's another side of it where someone has to do something bad while you also must do something great to create a moment that no one expects like what we saw with Minnesota. So let's go ahead and say that Marcus Williams, the safety for the Saints, made an extraordinarily bad play on Sunday. My question for you guys is, and you can take this in any direction, whether it's something you've seen live, something you've covered, that you've watched from afar, what is the single worst play you can remember seeing in case Marcus Williams is not the answer? Well, mine's going to be easy because it still lingers with me about 40 years later. And you have to go back to think about being a nine-year-old boy, being a huge Dallas Cowboys fan and the Super Bowl. And, the you know, it's a game that I actually watched the replay of a couple of months because I found it on YouTube, but it was 1978 season, but you know the game I'm talking about. Jackie Smith dropped pass. Cowboys were trailing 21-14, third quarter. Roger Staubach drops back. And Jackie Smith, who up to that point had had a great 15-year career with the St. Louis Cardinals, future Hall of Famer, I mean, he drops a pass. He's wide open. I mean, it, it, it's him right in the number. I'm going to assume, Adam, even though we're a little bit different, you've seen this play. You know what I'm talking about, right? I honestly, off the top of my head, I don't know the play you're talking about. Wow. I mean, Roger Stahlbeck stuck it right between his numbers, and the reaction on Stahlbeck's face is, is, is stuff uh, of NFL film legend. Yeah. Yeah, his reaction, yeah. And I mean, it's even Tom Landry, perhaps the most stoic coach yeah. in NFL history, he even jerked back in disgust under his fedora. Huh. But for me, the reason why I select this is, I mean, you got to remember, this is, like I said, it's the fandom in me. I mean, there was nothing more important in my sporting life at that time than the Dallas Cowboys and and you know who knows how the game would have turned out but what happened was instead of potentially tying the game in the third quarter they had to settle for a field goal the Steelers didn't go up 35-17 Dallas rallies late to make it a really interesting game at the end but they lose 35-31 and afterward I I read a recent story on this uh you know Jackie Smith he he answered questions for an hour in the locker room after that and this whole time, his 14-year-old son was standing next to him. Hmm. So I read the story about his son's memory of that day and watching his dad kind of go through this experience. It just kind of brought that memory back. So when he asked that question, it's kind of fresh in my mind. But that's the one that probably sticks out more than anything I remember. And there's been probably worse plays, but but that's where I'm at. I'm going to make a point to see that play. I'm going to go check it out on YouTube. I, I might have seen it, and I'm just not connecting the dots. I was very young in 1978. I actually hadn't been born for 10 more years. That's why we're here, we're here to offer you some perspective. That's why you got that. That is exactly your purpose and all of your vast experience. It was a huge dissected play in 1978. So just imagine what Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless <laughs> would be talking about. Oh, I, don't, I don't know if I want to think about that, but I, I guess that does put it in perspective. Well, for someone who uh, spent some of my uh, uh, young adult life in Tampa, I could probably name a few Buccaneer because uh, <laughs> yeah, they made a living on the Follies. But I mean, Scott, Bill Buckner. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, there's yeah, a lot of great yeah, ones. Yeah, Garo Yepremian, which was even five years even before that. Yeah. Uh, had the Dolphins lost that game, that one would have been memorable. But um, I'm going with the national championship game, North Carolina against Georgetown. 
Fred Brown throws the ball to James Worthy on a possession where they could conceivably win the national championship. He sees what he, what he thinks out of his peripheral vision as a teammate coming up uh, to his right, and he just gives the ball to the guy. And obviously, uh, uh, North Carolina wins the national title. Worthy has an incredible game. And just this groan, I believe, it was in the was it in the Superdome? Superdome. Superdome yeah. Just you know, you know, there are probably fifty thousand people there. Just I'm sure it was a collective groan from anybody that wasn't wearing a a Carolina blue shirt. Michael but Jordan's freshman year. Michael Jordan's freshman year. He made obviously the shot that gave them the lead in that game. But uh, I I do have to say, as bad as that play was for Fred Brown, I do remember a feel good moment a year later when Georgetown beat Houston. And Fred Brown was able to be in that game and hugging John Thompson a year after that play to kind of, uh, you know, maybe have that whole moment go full circle. And certainly uh, most athletes don't get a chance to to redeem themselves after such a such a horrific play like that. But that's one that certainly sticks out in my mind just because of the, the stakes and what have you. So a couple of really good answers. Very A little bit off the beaten path, not traditional. Like Buckner, everyone knows Buckner, right? That's standard issue, worst plays ever. So I like that we... Uh, I feel like we, we broke some new ground today, and that's what we try and do here on Gator Tales. So, oh, boy, do we ever? We, we do it every week. We broke ground because of your youth. <laughs> <laughs> that you hadn't heard about those. I won't deny that. But hey, podcasts are consumed largely by young people, so we're educating young people. Take that as your, uh, your good deed for the day. And I would like to add as we leave here, one thing that people are going to have to talk about with Marcus Williams, that guy's only 21 years old and had a really great season for the Saints. Earlier in the game, he had a huge interception for him. It, yeah. it really turned the game, actually. He's going to be a good player. I was glad to see how his teammates kind of stood up for him there. But I was even more impressed that in the locker room afterward, he took questions. And, uh, you know, he's 21. You could tell he's a basically a very young guy just the way he was answering some of the questions but you, you know I, I really do hope that this doesn't uh define him. yeah define him i hope he can bounce back and have a good career because it was a bad play uh it was one that no one expected how that game shook out but again this guy's a pretty good player and uh, and as long as we're defending marcus williams let's remember he was an interference penalty there makes a makes a big difference. Uh, sure. If the guy steps out of bounds, they still have a chance to kick the field goal. And let's not ignore the bad play, as I mentioned to Scott Carter two days ago, about a defensive coordinator who called some kind of alignment that had two linebackers in the middle of the field when the other team didn't have any timeouts with 10 seconds left in the game. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. So maybe we should have talked about the Minnesota defensive coordinator. There's always lots of factors that contribute to a calamity like that, so... You can, you can certainly point fingers in a lot of directions. I'm sure they still are. Uh, in any case, we hope there are no bad plays coming up in Lexington this weekend. And for all your coverage of Gator basketball, make sure to follow Chris at GatorsChris on Twitter and check out FloridaGators.com for all of his content. And Scott's got a lot of stuff about the coaches as they continue to get into place, the strength program getting underway. Football never far from our minds, so follow Scott at GatorsScott and check out his blog on the website as well. Gentlemen, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. All right, see ya. Thank you, Adam. Few college athletes have had journeys as interesting as Gabby Seiler. The redshirt senior began her soccer career at Georgia, but switched gears halfway through and traded the red and black for orange and blue. The All-SEC performer finished her soccer eligibility last fall and was taken ninth overall in the NWSL draft by the Portland Thorns shortly after our conversation. 
But a few weeks ago, Siler made waves across Gator Nation when she joined the women's basketball team for her final semester of school, becoming an unlikely two-sport athlete while finishing her master's degree. We caught up with Gabby during a short break in her whirlwind schedule to find out more about her unique story, starting at the beginning. So my dad was in the military, and I was born in Texas, and then we kind of moved around because of his job, and then when I was about four and a half, we moved to Atlanta or Peachtree City, and that's kind of where I grew up my whole life. Um, my dad played Division three football, and he was he was a really good athlete, and my brother, my older brother, who's 32, he also played high school basketball, so I was kind of always around sports in general. And sports kind of just became my background just from my family. And which sports did you gravitate to early on? What, what were you good at from an early age? Um, well, my dad was a really big advocate for basketball. So I grew up probably learning basketball skills when I was like four. Um, I think I gravitated more towards soccer and basketball. But I also was a pretty competitive softball player as well. And those were the three main sports that I did kind of throughout you know, elementary school, middle school. And I mean, I tried every sport probably, but those were the three main sports that I would say I was, you know, the most accustomed to. So you started your college career by playing soccer. So at what point did you focus in on soccer as the sport that you really wanted to put your attention into? I think it was the end of my sophomore year of high school. And it kind of came to a point where I kind of needed to focus on one sport. And that was kind of the moment where I had to choose, you know, maybe what was I going to be the most successful in or what made the most sense. So I kind of just gravitated towards soccer. Now, I know one of the reasons you went for soccer, too, is because you were really involved in the Olympic development program, some of the youth national teams, and that gave you a chance to, to really go all over the world. Can you talk about some of the most interesting places that soccer has taken you throughout your life? Yeah, it's taken me all over the world. I've been to Germany Italy. Um, I've been to Spain. I've been to Costa Rica. And those are just some of the countries that I've been to because of soccer. So when you started your college career, for those that don't know, it was at Georgia. So when you decided to transfer after the coaching change there, you could have gone almost anywhere and you wouldn't have had to sit out a year. But because you stayed in the SEC, you did have to sit out that year. So my question is, why was it so important for you to come to Florida that it was worth sitting out that year and not being able to play? Um, team culture, you know, I wanted to go to a place that kind of already had an established team culture and Florida women's soccer is kind of known across the country. Becky's known across the country for having one of the best team cultures, um, cause she cares more, you know, about who you are as a person than what you'll ever be as a player. So I think for me, I wanted to grow as a person and I wanted to grow as a leader. And I think those things combined kind of or what honestly made me gravitate towards Florida and not any other school. There aren't many athletes who have competed as both a Gator and a Bulldog. I'm curious how weird that transition was for you on and off the field, considering the rivalry and everything that goes with that. Yeah, it was definitely a weird transition. I think Georgia was just kind of my comfort zone. It was my hometown. Um, it was just kind of what I had known for a majority of my life. So Coming to Florida was obviously a completely different place. They're completely different schools, even though we're in the same conference. Um, they're almost polar opposites, I would say, when it comes to schools. So I think the transition was, I think, hard. Maybe like the first week was hard, but my teammates, you know, they were so awesome with kind of 
making me feel part of, of their family really, really quickly. So I think that's why the transition was so easy, you know, off the field and on the field. When you had two really successful years with the soccer team, I'm curious, what are some of your best memories from that part of your career? I would say my best memories are, I talked a lot about my redshirt year and, you know, that was just a really, really awesome time because I learned, you know, what it was like to be a good teammate off the field because there was no way, other way for me to contribute. So I had to find, you know, my value to the team, you know, not being able to be on the field. So, you know, I would just say my redshirt year as a whole was just awesome. I mean, I got a chance to really know my, get to know my teammates on another level and I got to kind of be a cheerleader and help them in any way that I could because that's the only thing I could do, you know. So I think just like making them better at practice was definitely a goal of mine. And then, you know, just being an encourager and trying to bring value to the team, even though I wasn't necessarily on the field. So in November, your season comes to an end with soccer and, you know, for all intents and purposes, your Gator career at that point was over. And yet, as we talk today, you're now a member of the women's basketball team. So can you fill in the, the gap for us of how this all came to be? Yeah, um, I knew that they had had some rough injuries throughout, you know, since the beginning of the season. So and I mean, I obviously have a pretty strong background in basketball, or at least I did in high school. Um, so Cam actually was kind of asking around. He needed some practice players or they just needed numbers on their team. And somehow Becky had gotten into contact with him and gave Cam my number. And then that's kind of how it just got started. And then Cam and I had been talking for like two to three weeks, two or three times a week, just figuring out, you know, how we were going to make this work. And then, I mean, I love being a Gator. And if I could continue being a Gator forever, I would. So, I mean, it was kind of a no brainer for me. What have been the most difficult parts of joining the basketball team at this level after so long out of the game and, and focused on soccer? Um, You know, I mean, I think it's just a new sport, so it's difficult in that aspect. But overall, like the team culture has been amazing. They've been so accepting and I'm sure it's not easy having a new player come to their team, you know, so they've been amazing and they've they're some of the best teammates that I've ever had. And honestly, I think I've made, you know, lifelong friends being here. So I'm, I'm really, really happy that I joined the team just, you know, to gain, you know, more teammates and more Gators and honestly, like a group of another best friend. How much have you played over the last four to five years since you stopped playing in high school? How much basketball has been a part of your life? I mean, I watch basketball whenever I can, but I mean, as far as playing, I mean, it was always tough because I mean, as you know, when, when fall season's over, you kind of immediately get into the spring off season. So there really isn't a lot of time to do something else. And especially you don't want to get injured and those types of things. So it was tough not being able. I mean, I didn't really touch the ball that much. I mean, I would try to play pickup when I can, but not very much, <laughs> I would say. Which parts have come back the most easily and, and which parts of your game are taking a little bit longer to, to get back? I think just like learning the plays and those types of things have been, you know, difficult. Obviously, when you come into a new system, I mean, it's it's different, you know, but overall, I mean, I would say the shooting part probably came back to me the quickest, getting repetitions and those types of things. Mm -hmm. Being one of the stars, of the soccer team, a team leader, an all SEC player, and now kind of the, the new kid on the block with basketball. How difficult has that been for you? And, and what impact do you ultimately hope to have? I don't think it's been too difficult. I would say my role is just to be an encourager and bring value off the court as much as I can and just give them positivity and just kind of, I mean, be a cheerleader to them. That's kind of, you know, the whole point of me doing this, I think, is just to kind of build them up 
and give them confidence. And that, I mean, that was also my role in the soccer team, I would say, as being captain. So, I mean, I think I have experience in that. So I think just being able to bring that positivity to the basketball team has kind of been my role and my goal since I've joined the team. I doubt you have much time to do anything else outside of basketball and soccer, which you're still doing. But when you do have some time off the field, off the court, what have you, what do you enjoy doing? Uh, there's not a lot of time for <laughs> other things, so I honestly couldn't tell you. Um, I mean, I guess I try to, I mean, I like reading books and whenever I do get a chance to read, I try. But I mean, with school and everything, it's pretty much just school and basketball and soccer. So final question, what does the near future look like for you? I imagine it's quite chaotic right now with so much going on. Definitely. I think I want to finish grad school and graduate with my master's. And then um, when the time comes, um, try out for a professional team. Um, that's kind of my dream. So that's kind of where I'm headed. Well, Gabby, we appreciate your fitness and we know how busy you are. And good luck to you. And hopefully you get on the court soon with the basketball team. We'd love to see you out there. And certainly we wish you luck with the NWSL draft as well. Okay, thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Follow the Gators as they head to Lexington for a high-profile showdown with the Wildcats Saturday night on ESPN, preceded by College Game Day live from Rupp Arena. Then make sure to come back here for an all-new episode next Thursday. Until then... I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Kentucky.